Hi and welcome to episode 39 of the Page One Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. And thanks for joining us for this very special episode of the Page One Podcast. Very special. It is, and we will tell you why it's special in just a moment. But if this is your first episode, thanks for tuning in. At the Page One Podcast, we like to speak to writers of all kinds, authors, screenwriters, comic writers, video game writers, any kind of writer, to find out about the writing process, how they broke into the industry, and to get as many hints and tips as possible, because Tarek and I are both writers and would like to make money out of it one day. That would be oh, nice, yeah, wouldn't it? Quite a nice thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we'll see how people that do make money out of it get on. Uh, have you had a good week, Tarek? I've had a pretty good week, yeah. Um, I mean, what have I done this week? Pretty much the same thing I did last week and the week before that, which was... And probably the 14 home. weeks before that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, although yeah, although the last of us came out three weeks ago, two weeks ago, so that's been taking up most of my time. Yes. Uh, apart from playing Last of Us and watching Netflix, I mean that's a pretty good week. I'll be honest. That's, that really is complain. a pretty good week, I would say. Um, on oh, working, obviously, for anyone from yeah, where I'm working, see, I haven't been working. I've been on holiday staycationing i think they call it now nice nice uh, vacationing in your house yes vacationing in my house which turns out to be very similar to <laughs> working working yeah <laughs> <laughs> would you like to tell our listeners who our guest is this week we chatted with joe cornish uh, very exciting uh, you guys might know him from his movies uh attack the block was his first movie mm-hmm. breakthrough film john boyega's first film directed john boyega's first film uh, his most recent movie is the kid who would be king which he also wrote and directed. But before he uh, was making movies, he was making TV shows. And he made Adam and Joe show with his comedy partner, Adam Buxton, who has his own podcast. Yeah, which, uh, I, I might have like heard it. of that. I, didn't I don't know. think it's quite as big as the Page One <laughs> podcast, but you know, he's, he's doing all right. Uh, <laughs> after that, he moved into the world of scripts with uh, Edgar Wright, another heavy hitter. Mm-hmm. And the two of them worked on Ant-Man for a long time. Yeah, we hear the story behind here, that, yeah. Um, and then uh, the adventures of Tintin. Um, and so it's a really, really good chat. Yeah. A really nice guy. And uh, yeah, we... we hear about him, his work on Tintin and getting notes from Steven Spielberg. I know, of all people, imagine getting notes from Spielberg. I know, and we also get a very uh, good impression of Steven Spielberg giving those notes as well. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening, Steven, uh, we are sorry, and uh, it was Joe's we, idea. Exactly. Um, but uh, we'll get on with the podcast, that's enough from us. But at the start of the podcast, we all noticed that we had uh, the same fancy microphones so always nice to know when you yeah. get the microphones. so there was a, there was a moment of uh, mutual admiration of the microphones and setting them up <laughs> and i've left that in the podcast because i thought it was amusing uh, and you also hear a bit about Tarek's secret room and yes, ladder well. thanks joe you really ruined that one for me haven't you? <laughs> but uh, we'll just play an advert for our writer's notebook the page one notebook which you can find out more on our website, the link is in the podcast description, and then we'll get on with the podcast, and we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to tell you about next week's guest, who is also a very exciting guest. <gasps> it's too much. <laughs> See you later. See you then. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome, but we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. 
So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic, or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Is it sounding okay? It sounds fine. It sounds fine. So I think that'll See, be absolutely fine. We've all got the same high, high-end microphone as well. Which is always <laughs> yeah. nice to hear we're the same as a pros, Marco. That's good. <laughs> and yeah, you've got it there, Marco. You've got it on there. Because I'm never sure I've got it on the right thing. Oh yeah, I've got a cardioid, which is meant to be. I think it's, it's second it, from the right. Is yeah, the sort of little. Do do, do oh, do I not have a change? No, it is. It's the little heart one, the little yeah. upside down heart. Yours is so a, a, a mirror image. Yeah, I think. So. What have you got your What have you got your volume on? My volume is at about point, twelve noon. It's at the E. My volume. You're at about ten to t- five to twelve. Yeah. All right, this is good. This is more technically um, <laughs> depth than any other podcast I've ever done. <laughs> End up very it, it, it's only going to go downhill from here. Behind you to your right. Oh, that's a uh, Blade Runner. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just uh, This is my little Zen space here. Good. Study. Where does that ladder go? <laughs> Who knows? Uh, yeah. I've, I've not tried climbing it yet. I'm too scared. <laughs> so you first broke in with the Adam and Joe show was the the first big break that you had but did you always have an ambition to write and progress to working behind the camera as well I did yes I went to I went to film school after I left school to Bournemouth uh it was called Bournemouth and Poole College of Art and Design back then it's called something else now mm-hmm. um and uh, yeah, so I went there when I was 18 and then I got a very prestigious job in Tower Records in Piccadilly Circus behind the video counter um, for a few years. And then I worked as a runner in production companies uh, in London's Racy West End. And yeah, and then I got very frustrated because I felt like um, even though I was sort of in working in film production, I was just a sort of production assistant and it seemed like uh, a million miles away to being a writer or a director. And I didn't 
and you're so busy, you don't really have the time to write. And I felt quite gloomy about ever getting anywhere. And then weirdly, the stuff that I was doing at the weekends with Adam, just messing around, Mm -hmm. my comedy partner, Adam Buxton, we would just make silly homemade videos at the weekends that was something we'd been doing since we were about 14 or 15. And it was him sending them into to Channel 4 that got us a break on TV. And and then that progressed into being the Adam and Joe show, mm. um, which obviously had various different skits and th- and things on it. I mean, was that... Yeah, one of the most important comedy programmes, I think, ever. I mean, I, I, I didn't want <laughs> yeah. to say, but yeah, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, but for that, were these... You know, how much writing in terms of like, did you actually script these things out or was it more you come up with an, a silly idea and then go and go and act that out kind of a thing? It would depend what the segment was. Um, most of them were written, though. So we did all sorts of things. We did sort of conventional links and we did songs and mm. uh, uh, like parodies of movies with stuffed toys and pranks and sort of spooth, spooths. Is that the plural of spoof of um, of TV shows? And yeah, you we we'd write them. We would write them, especially if you're going out and shooting on location, mm-hmm. or you're or, or you know you're uh, shooting to any sort of schedule, or you're involving another human being that isn't Adam in it. You mm-hmm. want to be prepared and know what you're doing, otherwise it would be a bit of a disaster. So yeah, we would write them. Um, some of them we'd write individually. Some of them we'd write together. Uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, and I've, I'd actually been writing, attempting to write screenplays and short stories since I was a kid. Really, mm-hmm. um, none of them I ever finished, but I'd enjoyed drawing the posters and then writing maybe the first twenty-eight pages, <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> running out of steam <laughs> and what to do. I, th- I think that's uh, the same point that most people get to when they're writing something and then they suddenly think oh this is too hard (laughs) yeah well you know writing stuff in a short form especially comedy is quite useful and so the comedy show we did the segments would seldom be longer than three minutes and that's quite a good discipline in terms of actually ending something Mm -hmm. but you would still have a sort of beginning and a middle and an end you'd have to think of a you know, an opening that established the premise. And then you'd have to think of, you know, not that we always succeeded in doing this, but you'd have to try and think of some sort of punch at the end and then some funny bits in the middle and, and to try and sustain interest. So it's not a bad way to, to do it, actually. Um, in And sometimes I think it's actually easier to do it in very, very short form than it, than it is in the form of a short film. I think 20 minute, half an hour short films are actually sometimes harder to do than mm-hmm. the much shorter Bits. And then, and then, how did you go from that into your first full script? Then, you know, was that, was Attack the Block? Was that the first script you'd actually written, or was that was Attack the Block further down the line? Uh, I think the first full script that I feature length script was mm-hmm. probably Ant Man with Edgar. Oh, I see. All right, okay. So, oh, so, so, so that was really early on, actually, right? Okay, after Shaun of the Dead before Hot Fuzz. Edgar was asked by a company called Artisan who used to own the rights to a bunch of the Marvel characters and were very cash-rich post-Blair Witch Project, whether he was interested in any of the Marvel characters. So he and I wrote a treatment for Ant-Man, you know, early noughties after after Shaun of the Dead. And then when Marvel 
became started to become what it is now, they realized he'd written this treatment. They were more interested in him than me. I think I just came along with the package and he was kind enough to keep me involved. Um, yes, yeah, so so that was the first. Uh, so that was obviously co-written. And the finished film is has four writers credited. Mm-hmm. But at that point, it was just him and me. And yeah, so that was the first. And that was a really important education for me that that that, that we wrote on and off for seven or eight years. Wow. Um, uh, yeah, so that was that was really important for me because obviously he's, you know, he's good at finishing things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> and then I wrote Attack the Block uh, after Ant-Man. So why was it? Ant-Man continued after Attack the Block. So it was going that whole period. In fact, I I came off Attack the Block and went back to writing Ant-Man with Edgar for a year or a year and a half until that came to a sudden stop. So 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 yes, the experience of writing Ant-Man with Edgar was like a little screenwriting school for me and gave me, I think, the, uh, what would you call it, the sort of skill set to finish a screenplay, which was Attack the Block. What what, what was the difference between... You know why was the process for for Ant Man so so long, but then Attack the Block was so short. You know what 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 was the problem with the two scripts, and why why did one take so long? Uh, it was Ant Man took a long time because Edgar was making other films. Okay. We were both doing other things. I was doing TV and radio, and he made uh, Hot Fuzz and Scott Pilgrim. Um, you know, which it takes a you know it takes a good three years to make a film, and yeah. a couple of them you really can't. A couple of those years you can't do anything else. Mm. Uh, and also, um, uh, what else took a while? I don't know. Like I said, the company had been through a lot of different sort of machinations in that period. It changed a lot, and there were different executives, and really the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe was created while we were working for mm-hmm. sort of not not you know we were on the books writing the script and all this stuff was happening around us you know I, I remember one of the first one of the first meetings we had or so i remember sitting in the in the lucas film theater um outside san francisco with john favreau and edgar watching the first fine cut of iron man wow and edgar giving john favreau notes and i think had we finished a draft by then? I'm not sure. But um, so so really the whole evolution of that studio uh, happened while we were working on that screenplay. And why did it take so long? I don't know, because we were doing a bunch of other things. They were very patient. They understood that it wasn't going to go into production immediately. Yeah. There were a bunch of drafts, you know, lots and lots of drafts, lots of changes and uh, improvements. And uh, yeah, so it was more a question of doing it in the downtime between other projects. And I suppose taking a step back from that was, did you know Edgar beforehand? You know how how was it that you you that you and he started working on the Ant Man script to begin with? Because we were both making comedy shows for Channel Four, so the Adam and Joe show was on Channel Four. Um, I think it started on Channel Four before Space, but we ran concurrently for a while. Space was mm. a lot more popular and on earlier. Um, but nevertheless, we met, we invited him. We used to have a big party at the beginning of every series of Adam and Joe. And we invited him and Simon and Nick and Jessica. And, um, and we just knew we had shared sensibilities. And I remember meeting him in a, in a, in a shop in London, uh, what was, what used to be 
a kind of mecca for movie nerds, a DVD and poster and toy shop called the Cinema Store in St. Martin's Lane in London. And we just met coincidentally there browsing through DVDs and uh, it just invite, you know, just, just made friends that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the nice thing really about, I wouldn't, like when I was at film school, I had quite highfalutin ideas and I wouldn't have predicted that my way into the whole thing would have been via late night TV comedy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, but it was a really nice way to do it because I ended up with all sorts of like-minded people um, who had similar ambitions and, you know, Edgar was incredibly uh, generous to factor me into his scheme at that point. He still is, to be honest. I mean, it was, that was a very sort of, you know, what you just listed all the names of those people that were all involved, including you and Adam as well, you know, for the, it seems to be a very creative group that was all working in the same place at the same time, you know, sort of serendipitous that, that it all came, yeah. came about that way. I guess so. I, we just in, incredibly lucky to, you know, Adam answered an advert in the NME, the New Musical Express, put in by a Channel 4 commissioning editor who was responsible for religion and belief, uh, looking for people to contribute to a homemade TV show because this was the, a time when uh, domestic camcorders were affordable and um, and that's what that grew out of. So it was just a really kind of jammy series of uh, fortuitous, uh, you know, uh, things happening. But yeah, I guess, I guess Channel 4 was maybe a bit different then as well. It was, um, maybe it had broader remits for, it commission, for its commissioners uh, and it was maybe a bit more imaginative because of course, about the time that the Adam and Joe show finished, Big Brother started. And that was the sort of beginning <laughs> of the end of Channel 4. Of everything. The shows that got yeah. about, you know, three quarters of a million, a million people watching yeah. at 10 or 11. Like at that point, they realized, oh, shit, we can have six million people watching if we put on balls. <laughs> <laughs> Quite compelling balls. But um, maybe, um, maybe, um, maybe it's just uh, sort of... Um, rose-tinted glasses, but it seemed to me back then they were a bit more adventurous in what they commissioned. Um, and so when you when you sat down with, with Attack the Block, you know, you'd, you'd worked with Edgar, you'd, you'd done some work on that man um, by this point already. Well, what's your process like? You know, how much, how much idea, when you had, did the idea come to you organically? Did you have to really think about it? Did you plan stuff a lot? Or did you kind of write it by the seat of your pants and see what, what happened? about Ant-Man? Uh, no, for, for Attack the Block. Oh, for both, I suppose. Well, I really... Like I say, like Edgar gave me a crash course in writing when we wrote Ant-Man and a lot of the lessons he taught me when we wrote that, I applied to Attack the Block. So the, so, so the first thing he did is watch a bunch of movies. So you have, you've got to have an idea. You've got to have a sense of the world. In this case, there were comics to build off, mm-hmm. but even with Attack the Block, I had the beginning. I I had images in my head. You know, most people do. You have one or two moments or scenes or characters that you think could be part of a larger scheme. So the first thing we did was break down a lot of the dramatic elements in the script. So there were ants, there was criminality, um, there was, uh, you know, you, you, you take all of the composite dramatic parts and then you watch movies that are similar. So we watched a ton of heist movies. We wanted it to be a heist movie mm-hmm. with this 
miniaturizing technology in it. And we wanted to be we wanted it to be a heist movie within a heist movie. So there'd be one sequence going on and there'd be another macro sequence going on within that. So we watched, you know, loads and loads of um uh of heist thrillers, you know, the Hot Rock and Inside Man and um and then we watched a bunch of movies about ants, saw Bass's Phase Four, uh um Ant exclamation mark. <laughs> so you take all the things and, and that's a really good discipline because you can either um, be inspired by things or sometimes when you're watching another movie, I don't know where you guys have this, but your brain goes into a sort of Zen mode where you actually yeah. think about your own movie mm-hmm. and somehow the frequencies in your brain waves tune into the same storytelling mode as the, or you just sort of enter a sort of movie space mm-hmm. in your head and it can be quite a good way to just come up with ideas that you then jot down in your special notebook yeah yeah, so that's really useful and then it also gives you a it gives you a sense of the terrain of what's been done within the terrain and you can check that you're being novel and you know and if it's older more obscure movies you might be able to nick something that hasn't been done for a long time so you do that then you just do research research so a bunch of research into ants we uh spoke to a lot of actual uh criminals and thieves and ex-cons because there was uh you know, Scott Lang was an ex-con mm. trying to rebuild. Oh, that must have been quite interesting. Sorry? Yeah, that must have been quite, quite interesting research there. It really was. And I know a lot of it actually ended up, uh, Edgar ended up drawing on a lot of the research for Baby Driver. Oh, um, right. Okay. So, and that's a really, that was really new to me as well. The idea that in, in a big sort of escapist fantasy adventure pop culture movie, uh, there might be some use for real research and apparently i think elmore leonard used to do it a lot he used to, we used to send assistants out and actually record conversations on buses and stuff so the notion of reality being a resource you can draw on for fantasy mm-hmm. is really important as well because you know ev- everything however far-fetched or fantastical it is in narrative is has to relate to reality people yeah. have to you know the, the the posters you've got behind you there Tarek, like alien and blade runner both have you know, really strong elements of relatable, grounded truth in them. You know, the yeah. sort of way that Aliens is like a sort of massive truck going through mm-hmm. space and, you know, how re- how realistic all the dialogue is and in Blade Runner, how grounded and used and filthy and dirty everything is. Yeah, absolutely. So sometimes it can really, I think it, it can always really elevate a piece of work if you go into the real world, find things that relate to your, you know, imaginative world and draw things out of reality to put in there. So we did a bunch of that and we wrote a treatment. One of the first things we wrote was a treatment. Um, and we tried to make, I remember Edgar really pushing us to make it as punchily pithily written as we could. So it was a pleasure to read as well. And mm-hmm. so that there was an element of style and flair in even in the treatment. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And then you just, Eventually, you've got to actually start writing. Uh, so, <laughs> so then you start writing, and um, yeah. Anyway, that's a long answer to your question. Uh, uh, but actually, just on that, I mean, because Tarek and I have actually, you know, we we write um, novels ourselves, but we've also written a couple of screenplays together, and we found, especially with screenplays, that it does help to have a co-writer there because screenplays are so dialogue heavy. 
you can have that sort of conversation and see if it works and you know get a more natural conversation style in that i mean do, do, you, do you find that helps with screenplays as well that actually the, with, with echo we would split the scenes and say okay you have a go at this scene i'll have a go at that scene and then we would just send them to each other and rewrite okay. and do that over over and over again i did with, with attack the block i did go and interview a lot of people and because i knew the story outline i talked to a lot of uh, people through the scenario and ran a tape recorder and basically that's where i got a lot of the dialogue mm. uh, but no i've never sort of co-written in a sort of um in sort of improv way sounds good well yeah, i it, don't know <laughs> you've not read it <laughs> well they're terrible scripts yeah. so with attack the block did you did you want to was it always the goal to write it and direct it yourself yes and how 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 easy was it to you know get that get that done get people to say yes go go ahead and do this well at that point i had good relationships with edgar's producer naira park mm. and also with a producer called james wilson jim wilson who just did waves and did you were never really here and uh works with jonathan glazer who was a friend of a friend and i just got to know and i also was really comfortable in Channel 4 just through doing the Adam and Joe show for, you know, I guess it would have been about 10 years. Mm -hmm. When I first walked into that building, I would have felt like a a nervous schoolboy. But after doing so much TV, I felt really comfortable there. The other thing that happens that's helpful is the older you get, suddenly the people you're having meetings with aren't quite that much older than you. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's actually a really helpful thing that I didn't anticipate when I was a kid. And I waited a while for Attack the Block. I was probably about 37, uh, 38 when I took the idea to them. Mm -hmm. So by that point, I'm probably the same age or even a tiny bit older than a lot of the people working for Film 4. So I'm less nervous and 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 secretly fucking desperate <laughs> which can really make you a painful meeting for people <laughs> the whole um chemistry going on in one's head you know uh so it's a bit calmer and more confident and and also so it's a combination of knowing all those people and and also it was a very snappy idea you know i had the i had a treatment i had the i had the premise uh, I had the catchphrase in a city versus outer space. I had a lookbook. I had a bunch of concept art a friend had done. And because, you know, the nice thing about having done telly is you can prove you, you've proved yeah. you can deliver something mm-hmm. and that you have the people around you who will support you in, in doing that. So I think you're less of a, I mean, it was still a massive gamble for them, but you're less of a, a sort of shot in the dark. And did you, I mean, obviously you went to film school, so but I mean, that was the first feature that you were directing. You know, did did that give you sleepless nights, or was the again was the TV work helpful in sort of grounding you what you needed to do and stuff like that? There, I think so. I would definitely, I definitely have moments where I was like, "Fucking hell!" I'm, you know, I'm supposed to be directing a film, and and if you listen too much to people's stories, you can get really paranoid and terrified. Mm-hmm. But but you know, actually, directing is. I'm sure you guys know this is is largely managerial once you've actually done the preparative work. 
And if you really care, and if you're like me and probably you guys, you've watched enough making of documentaries, read enough books about directors, watched enough movies. It helps to have been on a set. I hadn't really been on set proper movie sets that much, Hmm. actually. I'd been on Edgar's sets for a day or two at a time. But I really, I remember thinking before I started shooting it, fuck, I should go and like stand on a set and watch how it works. But, but actually that didn't matter because I just, uh, that's actually, actually something quite good about that because all you really care about is getting what you want. And actually the crew and everyone are there to do that, to supply you with what you want. What you've got to learn to do is use the first AD and use the mechanics of production to your benefit, which is something that took me a while. Mm-hmm. I, I was quite rude to the crew <laughs> because I was just so um, fixated on what I wanted. Uh, but now I think maybe I'm a bit too nice to the crew. In my <laughs> need to find that <laughs> happy balance. A bit more of an arsehole. <laughs> um, yeah. And when you write a script for a film that you're directing and you know that it's going to be a film that you're directing does that in any way change the way that you write the script you know so, so that if if you know if Tarek and I write a screenplay um some idiot decides I'm going to go make this then they take it off and they go and it's kind of almost out of your hands at that point and then it goes into the director's vision and it starts to get changed and things like that but when you're writing it for yourself for your own film in it, in any way, is the process slightly different because you know, well, if that doesn't work, I can I can tweak that on the day or anything like that. You can definitely do that. You can read. That's useful to be able to rewrite scenes. Like there was a scene in Attack the Block in the elevator, the one where they uh, where Bruis and Sam and the gang all meet up, and there's that line: "What's rum's weed room? It's a big room full of weed, and it's rum's." That was not good on the page and I knew it wasn't good. And on the, in the morning, I just took the time while the DOP was setting the lights and got the cast and said, all right, this, I don't think this scene's good enough. Help, help me out. And we all just improv a bit and we rewrote it together. Mm-hmm. So it's useful to be able to do that without having to bring a writer onto the set. But, you know, I've only directed two films, both of which I wrote on my own. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I, it's, it's not particularly mysterious, I don't think. Really, you you imagine it when you write it, and then you do your best to make it like that. <laughs> and then, obviously, things are different, and things go wrong, and the locations are different, and you run out of time and stuff. But if you've written it, then I think you're in a much better place to know where you can cut a corner or yeah. something, or change yeah. something, where you can afford to cut something, or. You know, that's why I would be anxious about directing something somebody else had written. Mm-hmm. Just because when you've written it, you just know every single dot above every single mm-hmm. yeah. you know, letter I. You just know every single detail of it. And you know the repercussions if someone asks you to drop this moment. You know that it will yeah. affect a scene in the first act or a scene at the end. Um so I'd recommend it. Not many people do it, though, actually, weirdly. No. Not that many directors. A lot of directors yeah. co-write. Not that many actually um, write and direct everything themselves. Certainly uh, in the world of sort of um, 
you know, a bigger budget or action adventure. A lot of dramatic directors do, but uh, there's not many people that are in the business of chases and fights and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, what you got, you know, genre is what I'm trying to say. Who, who, and, 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 and it's, it's funny because I would have thought it's something that, you know, you've, you've made two films that you wrote yourself, um, Attack the Block and The Kid That Would Be King, and you wrote Ant Man and Tintin for, for someone else to make. And, I'm, and with those two, with with the Tintin and Ant Man movies, I mean, I, I would have thought they would almost be more restrictive or harder to write because you're kind of writing to a specific set piece. You've got you've got books or fiction already there. You've got people you're trying to please. Whereas with your own work, you're is, is there freedom there that you can kind of you can write anything? You know, it's there's there's no one saying you can't have that character, etc. Um, well, both of those Tintin and Ant Man were both me as a writing partner to Edgar. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't have been anywhere near either of those films if it hadn't been for Edgar. Uh, both of them were pre-Attack the Block. Uh, I, I might have, you know, once that film had come out, it w- would probably have been different. But before yeah. that film, really, I was there. Courtesy of Edgar. And you're part in movies like that, you know, you're part of a much, much bigger machine. Mm-hmm. You know, in the case of Ant-Man, it turned out that that machine couldn't really accommodate the vision of a writer-director. In the case of Tintin, we took over from Stephen Moffat, whose draft was fundamentally too large, brilliant, but too long. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to cut it. Um, And Edgar and I came up with some ideas for doing that. But, you know, the draft we delivered of Tintin, the finished film, is very different. You know, it's been uh, a lot happened between the draft we delivered and the finished film. So... So on a, if you're a writer for hire on a big Hollywood movie that's a brand or has, you know, a, a huge directors like, like Tintin did, then I think you can expect to be a contributor to a much larger process. Mm-hmm. And you can't expect the same fidelity to you, to your personal vision of things. It's a completely different ball game when you're writing, direct, writing and directing. Um, you know, but, but but then there are lots of other things that can then come between you and yeah. what you envisioned, you know, because yeah. it's a massively expensive undertaking. You're asking people to give you vast amounts of money and things do cease to become, you know, uh, human in a way when yeah. that happens. Yeah, and, and on these, uh, these sort of bigger films, I mean, did, did you get, did you and Edgar get more notes you know as you hear from executives or people saying can you change this can you change that etc um in fact on your own films does anyone give you any notes or is it oh yeah yeah you still get notes definitely Mm -hmm. um yeah so i was trying to think of a sort of pithy way to answer that like on ant-man obviously we got notes to the extent that eventually edgar decided Mm -hmm. that the notes were not the film that he wanted to make on Tintin. I, I actually stayed working on it after Edgar went off to make the world's end, I think, or maybe Scott Pilgrim. I can't remember Scott Pilgrim, maybe. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was writing it on my own for a bit and I would uh, send in pages and then go to Amblin and sit across a big desk in a big conference room with just me and Spielberg in the room. 
and the sledge from Citizen, the rosebud sledge from Citizen Kane in a glass case on the wall behind me. Wow. And I would hand him pages and sit there like I was 12 and giving, <laughs> handing an essay into a, like an essay into a teacher. And I, I just sat there while he would read the pages. And he would go, Oh, that's great, Joe. That's really good. And then other times he would go, Joe, this has gone backwards. And I'd be like, oh. <laughs> and sometimes he'd say, you know, characters have to speak in different voices. They have to like, and then all this like stuff. I like, know I was trying to. <laughs> um, but, I'm sorry, uh, Steve. Uh, so yeah, so obviously, yeah, you get notes, but but the I guess the pithiest way to answer that is that notes are really important because when you make a film, you're expecting it to play. If you're lucky, to millions of people all over the world. Mm-hmm. And we all know what we're like when we watch, watch a movie. You, the vast majority of us sit down, fold our arms, and go, come on, fuck up. I, I'm inviting <laughs> you to fuck up. Do something I don't believe. Have a character make a stupid choice. Yeah. You know, that's most of, and if a movie gets through 20 minutes without that, without doing that, and actually absorbs it, you think, okay, this is really good. That's what's that's that's what's good, right? <laughs> and if the movie gets all the way without doing that, it's excellent. A couple of times, okay, I forgive it that because uh, this or this. So the whole process of writing a movie is an interrogation of the movie by the viewer. So you have to invite that interrogation as early on, not not early on. You have to do your work in a in a sealed space, and and there has to be a period of the of the creative process where you don't question yourself too much otherwise you'll never write anything Mm. once you feel a certain level of confidence in the work you have to invite other people to interrogate it people you trust because that's from then on that's all that will happen and it'll happen on the set the first day deal come up to you and go surely terry shouldn't be you know coming in uh saying that because three scenes ago he was doing well fuck he's right (laughs) (laughs) your world will be inhabited by all these other intelligent capable brains that will see things from different angles and you really have to listen and take that on board and adjust to because it's it's going to help it's going to help your film in the long run because if you're lucky you'll be sitting with it'll be in a theater with a bunch of people doing exactly this you know asking exactly the same questions and when you're when you're writing this and 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 you know at some point i need to hand these pages into steven or i need to show show it to somebody how do you know when it's ready? You know, how do you know when when you say this this these pages are ready to be handed in now? Well, there's an argument for just for just giving it in quickly, mm-hmm. especially on a, if it's if it's a movie like Tintin where it was actually in it was already in production when Edgar and I joined. Mm-hmm. So the best thing to do is to turn over the pages fast and not uh, not kill yourself because fundamentally, like if if you're any good, they'll be all right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But on that film, to a large extent, I was just couldn't quite, you know, probably like the rest of the world, couldn't quite believe I was there doing it. <laughs> so, uh, so I, you know, you you can just you just do your best, and um, if it's not good enough, you you move on, and if you stick around, then hooray, you know. Yeah. I mean, um, just on on that point of, you know, what did it feel like being in that room with Spielberg, you know, someone whose films you 
grew up admiring and stuff, and suddenly you're in the room with Spielberg and Rosebud, Rosebud on the wall and stuff like that. Well, it was very exciting, but that was that was quite a long way into the process. So I got over that mm-hmm. initial thing, and um, but it's not that useful actually. That it's exciting when you come away from it, when you get back to your hotel. But but you know, you're there to do a job. Mm-hmm. You're not there yeah. to be a fan. So you one just does the job. But the, it's good, nice to be relaxed and personable. But um, the professional thing to do is to focus on the work and and you know demonstrate your uh respect for the person by doing your best work mm-hmm. uh i think but but just to go back to Tarek's point like when is a page ready to hand in i think a, for me a really good lesson is just to you've just got to write and don't filter yourself too much because you can always rewrite that's the free bit that's the bit that costs nothing mm-hmm. So my philosophy is just get anything down. Like the worst version of a scene is better than no version of a scene because there's a version of the scene. Mm-hmm. And if you write the wrong thing, that's going to help you get to the right thing. So so I think it's really important to do research, really important to have a brain full of ideas, even if they don't necessarily pertain directly to the storyline. Like do all the research, watch all the movies, get your head buzzing with material. But then when it comes to writing, just just write. And if you if you get stuck on a scene, skip it. Go to the next. Mm-hmm. Go to the scene you really feel you can write. And it doesn't matter if it's not quite right yet. Do you know what I mean? Just just fill pages. And um, and then as long as you have a reasonably good filter, you know, to switch your brain off, stop being the author, become the viewer, read your own script, and be able to go, well, that's balls. That's just floundering around. That's not moving the story forward. You know, and then rewrite it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and for that part of it, do you do you find it useful to sort of take a bit of time between writing it and then going back to it and sort of yeah. with the fresh yeah. eyes type so thing? I do think stopping every now and then is quite useful. Mm-hmm. Going to watch a movie or just doing something completely different for a day, because you you guys know how it is. Sometimes you'll have an amazingly productive day, and sometimes you'll bash your head. Yeah. You know, it's 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 weird, isn't it? You can write thirty pages in six hours, or half a page in, you know, twenty four hours. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think when you feel you're just getting blood from a stone, um, do something else that fills your stone with blood. <laughs> yeah. For a bit. That's good advice. Um, and then your your second film, obviously, was the kid who would be king. That was quite a few years after Attack the Block. So, mm. um, you know, why why did it take so long to get to that second film? Sometimes I ask myself that same question. But I think the answer is I did Attack the Block and I went around festivals with it for a year, which was incredibly good fun all around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I wrote, I felt a real loyalty to Edgar to finish Ant-Man, which went until 20, it came out in 2015, right? So I think we were working on it until 2014. Right. And then I started on Kid Will Be King in 2016. So that really only leaves two years in which I tried to get a project called Section 6 off the ground. Basically, I got attached to a couple of projects uh, that didn't get off the ground. And that's because it's very tough to make original films mm-hmm. of a decent budget. 
uh, it's tougher now than it was then, but it was tough then. And I was offered a bunch of, um, you know, studio franchise mm -hmm. movies and a lot of stuff that I just didn't think that, you know, I thought, well, another director could do this fine and I'd enjoy seeing it, but is it something I want to spend three years of my life on? Yeah. So the projects I did really like were just a bit too, uh, I don't know, just weren't right for the conservative atmosphere of the, uh, and it's quite, but plus I spent a lot of time, I think, learning about the system out there and how it works and uh, the, you know, tr filtering out the hyperbole that, you, you know, the, 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 the truth of it from the hyperbole mm -hmm. yeah. is quite, it's quite exciting. Yeah. It's very easy to get um, a little bit dizzy and uh, uh, what's the right word? Like, um, it's very easy to have your sort of illusions encouraged out there. And there are lots of people that's that, that go to Hollywood for and five or six le years later, they, they feel like they're about to make something mm -hmm. and five or six years later, they look at their watches and go, fuck, uh, <laughs> none of this shit's happening. Uh, these meetings are really exciting. I'm getting loads of bottles of water. But, uh, <laughs> I'm going to parties and I'm meeting people and I kind of feel like I'm here, but, Nothing's happening. Yeah, and then they go back home. So is that is maybe that's what happened to me for like a a year or two? But it was a good period because I, I I also watched a lot of my peers make big franchise movies and not have particularly pleasant experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, I kind of wanted to ask about that because you see that quite a lot. You know, you've Colin Trevorrow did Jurassic World after a very small movie, um, Josh Trank did Fantastic Four, and and sometimes they're success stories, and and often they're they're obviously very kind of troubled shoots, or they're they're difficult shoots, and it's a lot of responsibility for someone who's maybe not done a massive film. And so I think there's a lot to be said about you know not rushing into something too massive when you've I guess not maybe had enough experience perhaps. So I I, I, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong, and you know taking time and, and choosing the next project properly. No, I think you're right, and. Um... It's just different strokes for different folks. You know, some directors take a lot of time between projects. Some really churn them out. Some have spates where they do a bunch and then have longers. Um, it's not, I tell you, you can really expect somebody to make a film every X number of years because the way to do that is to make films that make shitloads of money. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that's how, yeah. you, that's when, if you're Tarantino, then fine, mm -hmm. you know. They guarantee, you know, they guarantee a certain amount of money. But the people that can do that are quite few and far between, and the industry knows that, which is why they rely on all these familiar properties. And the yeah. audience has become more and more conservative. I mean, this is—we're not the first people in the world to talk about this. It's a conversation that mm -hmm. is happening all the time amongst anybody who likes movies. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and and you know, as as someone who's a writer director, I, I was trying to be a writer director of bigger movies, and mm -hmm. that is, a, 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 I'd say, actually almost impossible if you're, um, uh, you know, now. It's yeah. really difficult. I, I, actually, I read uh, Duncan Jones tweeted, I think last week or something about something similar, where he was sort of saying that you know the, the problem isn't. You, you can make small budget movies. This you can still find a ways ways to do that, or you can go and direct a franchise or something. But if you're wanting to make your own original, not small budget movie, but not you know hundred million movie, mm. then that's that seems to be the 
the difficult place to find money and traction and support for at the moment. That's that was his view anyway. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, he um, he made obviously Moon, which is an incredible movie. Mm-hmm. Then he made Source Code, that where, where he was mm-hmm. a sort of director for hire, but did a brilliant job. I'm not sure how much he enjoyed that experience, or the, the, you'd have to ask him the degree to which he felt that was his mm-hmm. movie. And then War, Warcraft, that was a you know, I think a tough experience for him. Um, you know, Gareth Edwards had. You know, these these are all people whose first movies came out not at a similar time to yeah. Attack the Block, and really, I sort of, in a slightly cowardly way, took refuge back in working on Ant Man with Edgar, and sort yeah. of sat it out for a bit and, and watched for a bit. And um, but some people do it brilliantly. You know, I think you just have to have a certain sensibility to to be able to do it. Maybe uh, I can do it. Maybe I should give it a go one day. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did read it. This might not be true that JJ um, Abrams offered you Star Trek Three, but I mean, obviously, that's kind of something. If it was true, again, someone else's work, tempo movie. It's it's a it's a it's a tough one to you know. If you get offered stuff like that, it must be hard to say. Do I want to do this? Is my heart really in it, or do I want to write something and make something completely fresh that I've done myself? Well, yeah, that that is true. I took a bunch of meetings about that. And I I wouldn't, you know, what happens is you take the meetings and then somebody leaks the story. And next thing you know, it's a headline in the Hollywood Reporter, which is slightly annoying because then when, if you choose not to do it, the story then becomes, oh, Joe Cornish doesn't get Star Trek. (laughs) It always assumes that you desperately wanted to do Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, yeah. That was a really attractive offer, and you know he's a he's a really brilliant guy. And I took a couple of meetings, and I had a script meeting with, um, and Lawrence Kasdan was there, and I chatted to Lawrence Kasdan, which was very exciting for me. Wow! And uh, it was super early days, and actually, you know, that movie went through went went through lots of different permutations before it was eventually made. And the bottom the bottom line with that was, I was, I just. I just am not that big a fan of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought it would be an essentially slightly dishonest thing to do um, because I don't think I would have been doing it for the right reasons. And also I was worried that that I'd be part of this big franchise machine and, and, and in the end, you know, um, I might have a bad, you know, would I be able to make the movie that I thought was really good yeah. or would... Um, there would, you know, I would not be the one hundred pound gorilla in the room, as they say. Uh, <laughs> and well, I was also touching touching franchises like that. I suppose now comes with another risk, which is that you're you're going into fan. You know, you're putting yourself into a world where there's a fandom that can be overly uh, enthusiastic. Is maybe the nice <laughs> way to put it. Put it. Yeah. So, so yeah, if you make the wrong go. movie, then then you know they can they can decide to try and destroy your career. Yeah. Yeah. That's certainly true. I do remember somebody's, I remember going to dinner. In fact, I went to dinner at um, a friend's house and there was another director there who'd read that story and go, Oh, I hear you're up for Star Trek. And I said, yeah. I said, are you going to do it? I said, I I don't know. And they said, Oh, you'll have a massive target on your back. (laughs) (laughs) It is horrible because you think these are, these are all fans of, of, of great shows and films and and yet they can turn and they're, they're kind of especially social media i think they can really turn on people 
And there's a big famous story about the actor who played um, George R. Binks in episode one. Um, and, you know, he was, he was, his life was made miserable because of the fans who hated the character and so, and so took out the anger on him. And it's, it's just, it's kind of madness, but it's the same through the world that we do live in at the moment. Yeah, I don't think you can control that though. No, um, I think that's I think that's right. Yeah, exactly. you just have to do you just have to do your best. There's no exactly. knowing. You know, I had no idea what the response to Attack the Block would be, or mm-hmm. or or Kid would be King. You just got no idea. You you make the best film you can, mm-hmm. and then, in fact, I remember when when the first series of the, when the first episode of the Adam and Joe show went out, and there was a, uh, the first review came out in Time Out, and it was like Pick of the Week, and it was this rave review. Just how random that felt. Now yeah. that felt like, oh, this that could have, you know, people make people will decide for themselves. Nothing, there's nothing you can do about that. They will decide for themselves. Yeah. And, um, you just have to do the best that you can. But the other thing I'd say is, I have to say, I don't go, I don't find those big franchise movies particularly nourishing personally mm-hmm. as a movie fan. Like there are definitely exceptions when they're done beautifully, but more often than not now. As somebody who is relatively mature <laughs> and was around for the first wave of these mm-hmm. movies, who actually yeah. experienced the original genesis of these franchises for the when they were when they were original movies, yeah. you know, Star Wars was an independent movie basically mm-hmm. picked up by Fox. It was a, a sort of anti-Vietnam statement mm-hmm. made by a, a sort of angry indie filmmaker, and now it's a sort of the most monolithic sort of um corporate you know uh sales machine there is it's become the absolute opposite of what it first yeah, was that's yeah. so true yeah and um i don't know Oft- oftentimes i watch those movies and you can really feel clever people sweating to try and do right by something that was made in a completely different way yeah, yeah. a completely different set of intentions and it's like, well, yeah, the money's must be great. <laughs> but, um, you know, do you, there's something, there's something incredibly satisfying about writing and directing and, and, uh, seeing a, a, your own idea through to the end, whether it succeeds financially or critically or not, mm. you know, at least it's a, it's a sincere undertaking. Yeah. It's an uncynical undertaking, you hope, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. And you don't feel like you've just done, Put another plastic toy into the landfill. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. And one one of the projects that you were attached to, or your name was certainly attached to, was uh, Snow, an adaptation of Snow Crash. Mm. Um, How how far did that? I I, I don't don't think you're still attached. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, no, I I am. But oh yeah, um, okay. In fact, that was what I did immediately after Attack the Block. Kathy Kennedy bought me Snow Crash and said, do you want to adapt this as a feature film? So while I was writing on, on Ant-Man, that would have been, I think, 2012, I wrote a screenplay of um, Snow Crash. And like, talk about taking on the most difficult. Yeah, I was going to say. Trying to do Finnegan's Wake or um, some unfi- un- unfilmable uh, novel. Um, but it's an incredible novel that I recommend everybody read. Like, it's yeah, insanely brilliant. prescient. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was for Paramount, but they didn't go for it as a feature film. I think, I think they ended up having to choose between Ghost in the Shell, 
and Snow Crash, like, okay, we're going to do a cyberpunk thing. And they went for Ghost in the Shell. Right. Um, fair wrong, enough. Wrong move. Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, uh, so, and that is currently as a uh, show for HBO Max being written oh, right. by um, a very brilliant writer called Michael Bacall, who wrote the 21 Jump Street movies and Scott Pilgrim. And he's very, very, very brilliant writer. So, so, so he's writing it as an episode, as episodic telly that I'm attached to direct and executive produce. Um, and that is very much, very much alive. It's, he, he just delivered a script yesterday and it's really brilliant. brilliant. It's an amazing book and it could be a really, really, um, really cool series. Well, I, I was going to ask, so you did work, you did do a script of it for a feature. Yeah, I, I mean, what, um, you know, did you enjoy the process of adapting? I mean, obviously, as you've said, it's it's one of the most difficult books that you could try and adapt into a feature film. But did you enjoy that process of adaptation? Yeah, I did. Yeah, it's because it's an amazing book, and it was mm-hmm. amazing to meet Neil Stevenson, and it was it's just really thought provoking. And I think there is a like, I think there would have been a good feature version of it, like a Verhoeven-y, mm-hmm. Sophisticated yeah. pulp, you know, in the same yeah. way that Starship Troopers and Robocop and Total Recall managed to be really delicious bubblegum, mm-hmm. but also yeah. somehow organic bubblegum with, uh, with real, uh, you know, nutritional value. <laughs> um, and I think I, I, I you know, certainly what I was shooting for was a version of Snow Crash that was almost like a, like a nineties, um, sort of out there, uh, sci-fi, thriller mm-hmm. with all these sort of extremities of character and action but also that had a socio-political and satirical uh, uh through line to it but but the you know the version we're working on for hbo max still has all those things and in fact um it's a cliche isn't it but in that in long form telly you really get the opportunity to explore yeah minutiae of that world and obviously in the feature version it was all much more uh compressed but it's quite a simple story, actually. There's a lot of um, footnotes and addendums and tangents that, if you strip them out, it's actually quite quite a simple and brilliant idea, Snow Crash. I mean, in the, in that process of adapting a book, did you what you know? What do you do? obviously you read the book a couple of times, but I mean, do you do you sort of note down right what is what is the through line here? What are the main points that I need to that have to be in this, and then. You know how how do you how do yeah. you restructure it and things like that? Uh, I think that's probably what. I, oh, well, I said before I took the job, I said, okay, I want to write a treatment. I asked, I I sort of, um, I said, well, no, listen, I don't. I think they were prepared just to greenlight a screenplay, commission a screenplay, but I said, no, I'd like to write a treatment. So yeah, and so I just I would have written a beat sheet based on the basic beats of the book. And, um, and I think when you read the book, you have to have a set, you have to just, um, almost subconsciously see, uh, three, you know, a three or a five act structure in it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it has this amazing central notion that, uh, that, um, oh, I'm, uh, I can't try and explain what's no crashes in it, but like, uh, cuneiform script, uh, that was written in clay tablets in, mm-hmm. s- you know, Babylonian, pre-Sumerian, uh, cultures, which they wrote with a, with a stick, with a flat end and a pointed end are basically dots and dashes, a, a machine code. So you can take the, so the evolution of language and the evolution of the human brain, it, it, 
there's a, there's a connection between that and the evolution of, of computer coding and, and, and that there's a virus, mm-hmm. a linguistic virus that existed back then that is also has uh, capability now. So it's this amazing meshing of, um, of uh, te- te- technology and ancient history and the evolution of language. But, but it's actually sort of sort of like like where is the lost ark or something it's quite uh it's got a very simple MacGuffin, which is this clay tablet um anyway mm-hmm. it's, it's such a good book it's an insane no, have you got have either of you read it yeah I've, I've read it and it, yeah I've it is mad it, I have to, I have to it's, it's mad how every morning you wake up and watch the news and <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> another element of snow crash yeah even yeah, the pandemic you know even yeah and Trump and uh, and uh, the sort of um, atomization and culture wars that are happening at the moment. You know, Snow Crash is set in a world where people are so sort of uh, partisan that they live in walled cities mm-hmm. depending on either ethnic or cultural differences. Um, so there's so many similarities to the way the world's going. It's slightly alarming. Yeah. I've, I've, I've not read it, but from what you guys are saying, it sounds intriguing so i think it will definitely have to pick up a copy of that yeah it's well well worth it and is the is the show on hbo max is that going through because i know you've just launched a uh, complete fiction which is a production yeah. company with yourself and edgar nita park who you mentioned as well and rachel Pryor. and is that is that a show that you're making through through that new new it's actually new isn't because it's dates so it ah, okay. dates all the way back to 2012 so that's still with kennedy marshall um kathy kennedy and frank marshall's company uh, yep. and, and Paramount TV and ah, okay. HBO Max. Yeah, so that's the one thing I have that isn't um, that isn't to do with complete fiction. Because I saw that you're. Am I right in saying you're also working on Lockwood and Cool, which is yeah, yeah. That's is really... that something you're you're going to write yourself as well, or is that? Yeah, well, I, I've, written, I've written um, uh, yeah, a couple of episodes of that, and yeah, that's based on these really brilliant books by a guy called Jonathan Jonathan Stroud. Uh, and it's about uh, it's set in London, which is plagued by ghosts. But he's figured out this really brilliant uh, taxonomy of ghosts and all these rules and things that really, excuse me, I burped. Uh, all these that's not <laughs> reflection on the quality material. It's <laughs> London that's uh, infested with ghosts, but he's figured out a really cool way to make it all work and laws and logic that kind of I've never come across in that sort of supernatural fiction before. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's a series for Netflix, which I'm going to direct a bunch of and awesome. uh, to produce. Excellent. When, when will that hit Netflix, do you think? Uh, tomorrow morning at night. And brilliant. <laughs> I'll, I'll watch it all know. tomorrow, binge on it tomorrow. Great. <laughs> More I mean, lockdown. It, I, oh, I, think, I think probably... With a bit of luck, next year, maybe the following year. I don't know. Brilliant. Is it? Is it in in some ways? Is it? There never been a better time to to create stuff because there's so many more outlets now than there was ten years ago. You know, Netflix, Amazon Prime. There's so many new shows, new places pop up every other week, but it's, it almost seems sometimes. I don't know. I guess the answer is yes, but um, I, you know, I just thank think myself lucky to. Uh, be gainfully employed in any, you know, writing and directing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess, I guess so. I certainly think um, right now it's a bit of a godsend, isn't it? Because the cinemas appear to be shut. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> <love> the Netflix. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
so thank God these services, you know, exist um, to keep a portion of the industry afloat, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, I think it's but certainly British studios are busier than ever, you know. And we're very lucky, you know, in this country to have such uh, such a busy industry. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the other thing to say to any aspiring writers that are listening is there is, it's not as if um, there are millions of really good writers out there. Uh, good stuff does stand out and good people do stand out. And when you go out there to look for writers for a series, the people that are good are really busy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, definitely a seller's market. And, you know, if you're good, then write a spec, you know, uh, write a feature, write a sample, get an agent, get it, get it out there because the work is there. If you're a good person and you're nice, which is really important as well. There's some people out there that are like really so desperate and competitive that it's just like, Oh Jesus. Um, if you're a decent person and your writing's really good, um, then, then there's definitely work out there. I think. Well, I was, I was actually going to ask about that because certainly what we've encountered ourselves and also heard about is more that if you're wanting to, you know, if you want to make it in feature films or whatever, then if you're not in America, then it's very, very difficult. But obviously, there is a big British production scene as well. So presumably even if you're based in Britain and you can't get to LA or whatever, then there is still a point in trying to yeah. trying to get your script in front of people. Well, most of it shoots over here. Like not a mm-hmm. lot, none of it actually mm-hmm. shoots in Los Angeles is the other thing. It's all being shot over here or in Australia or in South Africa or plus, you know, um, there's tele- telephones and the internet and stuff. So yeah. geographical location shouldn't matter. But the, the, I think if there's one thing, there's one thing that I've learned <laughs> to take whatever opportunity of whatever size or scale you can. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think I'm repeating myself from something I said earlier. Like when I was at film school, I had very highfalutin ideas that I would go straight into directing feature films. But what actually got me there was the absolute inverse was doing late night soft toy based puppet shows <laughs> for channel four. And I yeah. did think for a while, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> I'm doing this weird late night show with Adam and I want to be a film director. And But I found ways to exercise those muscles by parodying films and in a weird roundabout way, mm-hmm. learned about lighting and learned about editing. And and I wasn't ready to do that. You know, I'm glad I waited till I was 38 to make mm-hmm. a technical because, you know, it was hopefully informed by a bunch of experience. So, so the thing is not to be... Um, like I was a snotty git and, <laughs> and you know, to take any opportunity you can, as long as you're being creative yeah, and as long as you're exercising those muscles, whether it's episodic TV or like comedy is really good because mm. it's provable. People laugh or they don't. Yeah. And if you do stuff that's funny, then no one can argue. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's yep. more provable than drama ever is because every, you know, yeah. Um, but take and competitions are always worth doing. You know, we answered Nampa in the paper. Like, really, um, don't expect just to direct a feature. I mean, maybe you will, and that would be brilliant, and it would be great. But um, 
in terms of actually being paid to do stuff, anyone who can anything that pays you to be creative is always worth doing. Mm -hmm. And it's it's the same. I was saying this to Tarek the other day, which is it's funny, but it seems to be everyone we've had on the podcast always makes a point of saying, and you know, you have to be professional, you have to be nice, etc. Which do they really? Yeah, they do, and it's 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 something that I would have thought would be a fairly obvious thing to do <laughs> to, to do if you're trying to get into an industry and and make it there. You have to show that you're professional, but it, obviously there is, because everyone says it does, there must be a lot of people that don't approach it in that way, which is a bit surprising to me personally, but, but there you go. Yeah, I guess so. I, I, just think, I just think when someone can do it and is really good, and delivers on time and listens to notes and makes changes and and then is really easy going you think you know that person's a keeper mm-hmm. yeah um and you do find people do people like that are quite rare and when you come across them you really hang on to them mm-hmm. uh, same with crews you know you find a really good first ad you think oh i want to work with this person yeah. forever or a really good dop um because, uh, you know, you're all getting up and going to work together and you're jumping on the phone when you want to be doing something else or, you mm. know, so it's got to be... Um, Enjoyable. It can't be, uh, you can't yeah. be carrying all sorts of other baggage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm interested that everyone else says that, though. Yeah, no, they do. It's, it's something we've we've commented on, as, as yeah. I say. Yeah. I guess I know it because I'm sure I, I was definitely that. I was definitely that sort of exhausting, desperate person for when I was in my early 20s. <laughs> oh, God, please. I know it's not very good, but oh, God, please. Anything, I'll do anything. And the, the, the last question I wanted to ask you uh, was, um, <laughs> will you write your own, uh, will there be a, a, a Joe Cornish song to go over the end credits of your next feature film? Uh I think the short answer is no. <laughs> I think if you I wrote ever, some good ones. One day, like if I made a very uh, a silly film, which it may it may well come to that. But um, I'm still holding out that they remake the Quantum of Solace and use my song. <laughs> yeah, that would be the best one. Yeah. I mean, it could do. Is there it another could, version of it? I, I quite like the Quantum of Solace. I think it's quite an interesting Bond film. It's the shortest. It's sort of weirdly sort of. Um, narrative light and dialogue light and it's sort of the most yeah. i don't know quite why but it's ended up almost like an experimental bond film yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. was it was it the writer's trick was it it feels something there was like something that. happened to because i know what you mean it doesn't it feels like an odd bond it's film quite odd and unusual yeah. and, and it really is uh quite i feel like the living daylights is like that as mm. well yeah like it's sort of an anomaly but interesting because of it uh but nevertheless i think you could remake it and use my son <laughs> I think I think that would definitely improve it. When I say you could remake it, I mean you could. Ah, well, that's excellent. that's you, you've heard it here you first, people. Remake. This is. The... <laughs> what was the last film that you saw? Well, um, I just got the uh, the Columbia 4K box set. You know. Um, 
which has the 4K Lawrence of Arabia. All right. All right. Cool. So I projected that over the last two nights. And that's a really good film. I don't know whether you've seen it. That's I've my, seen it years ago. One of, one of my guilty things, I've never seen it. One of the really? famous films I know I should have seen, but I've never watched it. I think it's one of the movies they're providing to cinemas for free when they reopen. Oh, right, okay. Instead of new, they're, they're releasing a whole bunch of archive movies. And so to see it on a big screen, uh, it's really it's really incredible. Oh, that's cool. I might actually go check that out. I might just yeah, go on my bio, biohazard suit and just sit there <laughs> in the back row yeah. and just watch it. What struck me that this time is how unheroic he is and how he's a bit of a prat <laughs> and um, how dark it actually is and what a troubled, tortured character he is. Awesome. Um, he's weirdly sort of anti, anti-hero. I think that's an incredibly obvious thing to say, but when I was younger, I used to think yeah. he was sort of... Yeah, and especially for, for the time it was made, I, you know, it was not the kind of the kind of either where you had everybody, every hero was quite straight-laced or... Yeah, it's quite dark, and it's very, very interesting about co- colonialism. You know, mm-hmm. watching watching it particularly now. Awesome. Yeah, so that's the last film I watched. Uh, what about the last book that you read? Oh, gold! Um, I'm reading uh, Young Torleth, which is a German book about a Catholic boarding school. Uh, it's a novel, um, and it's about uh, yeah, Young Torles, T O R L E W S. Uh, and it's a really good. There's a really good German black and white movie uh, of Young Torless, and um, I realised I've never read the book. So, I'm oh, cool! I've never heard of that before. There's a comedy by, by, by the sounds of it. <laughs> Sorry, it's just fun to say in German. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's kind of this bunch of school kids who pick on another boy in this weird sort of sadomasochistic, and they kind of kidnap him and. Um, like start regularly beating him up. It's okay. really good. It's just about. It's a sort of allegory. It's like p- p- political allegory. Um, it's good, and it's called Jungtorle. And you have to say it that way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sounds like a, a, a light-hearted romp. <laughs> it is a light-hearted romp. The other fun film title to say is Fanny Och Alexandre. <laughs> yeah, Bergman's Fanny and Alexander. Say that in the original Swedish. <laughs> I'm not sure that's quite how to say it. It's a fun way to see it. Um, And what is the last TV series that you have watched or are watching? I just watched. um, I watched uh, Escape. Now, what's it called? The Ben Stiller Escape to Danamora. Oh, it's Escape from Danamora. Is Is it from though? I don't think it is. I thought it was something. It's on Escape on or Escape in or Escape to. The middle word something you wouldn't know from my phone. I watched that. I really liked it. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, that's definitely. It's on my to watch list, but I haven't haven't yeah, made it there yet. I just had a big um, conversation with Adam Buxton about it because he didn't think it was um, Escape at Danamora. Ah, Escape at ah. okay. Danamora. He thought it was morally reprehensible. Glamorizing <laughs> 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 the uh, glamorizing mass murderers. Oh, okay. What does he know? What does he know about mass murder? Exactly. <laughs> More than you'd think, maybe. Skeletons in his closet by the way, it sounds a bit. So I think we've got the Joe's, Joe's go ahead to remake uh, Quantum of Solace. Yeah, oh, I think you, so. Are you up uh, for that? Yeah, yeah, I'm up for that. And 
yeah, happy to use his theme song as the as the main well, Bond it, theme. I mean, it'd be nothing without that song, obviously. <laughs> if you don't know what we're talking about, it's uh, from the Adam and Joe radio show. They used to have a section called Song Wars where they would both make quite high production, it has to be said, <laughs> uh, uh, songs about a particular topic. And one week it was about uh, Quantum of Solace. And Joe's Quantum of Solace song uh, is sort of renowned as the base to one of those song war songs. So it, you, I think you can still get those. Uh, download that podcast. Uh, I have to say, I watched I watched Goldeneye for the first time in a long time, a few weeks ago, and uh, Adam and Joe have completely ruined Pierce for me. Because... <laughs> You know, you know, he's an excellent Bond, Brosnan, but there's a clip from his film Taffin, which he made a, a long time ago. He's yeah. pretty young in it. And, and there's a scene in it where he uh, he calmly says, maybe somebody should move out. Uh-huh. And uh, and it, it honestly, you have to watch it. It's just it's um, it's an unbelievable yeah, tour de force I, of acting. I'll, I'll put the I'll put the link in the in the podcast description. <laughs> yeah. But it's, all, it's all I can think is that clip of him whenever I see him acting. Yeah, again, that that was on the Adam and Joe radio show. They used to constantly play that because it was very very funny. <laughs> um, so yeah, do check out their their old radio show, which you can download as a podcast, I think. Mm. But um, I thought I thought that was a really fun chat with Joe. Yeah, really, really interesting. Um, I can't wait to see the adaptation of Snow Crash because I did love the book and I do think that the long-form TV version is the way to go with a story like that, actually. Yeah, yeah, I've not read it, but it certainly sounds like that would make sense. You know, stuff like Devs or mm-hmm. Watchmen, whatever, you've it, you've got really a lot of time to spend fleshing out a lot of, a lot of deep, mm-hmm. confusing storylines. So I think I can see that working quite well. And I also... You know, sometimes when we talk to people about getting notes from studio execs, etc., it tends to be in the negative, I suppose, you know. Um, But, Mm -hmm. you know, what Joe was saying there about the importance of them and why they're needed is is really true, really. You know, you you want to make a movie that everyone's going to enjoy. So getting that input, once you have been through the creative process i think it can be less useful if it's constantly happening when you're trying to create something but once you've got that draft out there then getting these notes can be helpful sometimes i think yeah we've all written something and spent ages writing something and you're so close to it mm-hmm. you know you need that you need someone with fresh eyes to look at it and um and i think everybody as you say everybody was sets out to make a best film they can you know nobody ever sets out to make a bad film no. or a bad book mm-hmm. so i think I think taking notes and uh, and being able to have the space and distance to appreciate whether stuff you want to follow or not is is really really important and, and not just being the only eyes on a project like that. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so, uh, just want to say thanks again to Joe for taking the time to come on the podcast. We really appreciated that and really enjoyed yeah, the chat. Much. Yeah. Um, so next week we've got another great guest, as I mentioned, and that's David Quantic, who is an author, a former reviewer journalist for the NME and also has written a lot of comedy stuff including a lot for the thick of it and Veep he actually won an Emmy for his work on Veep as well and we, we ch- actually saw the Emmy we did we did he was very very uh, keen to show us the Emmy. so happened to have it uh, in the background I believe the camera was was aimed at <laughs> Yeah, no, that was good. And actually hearing the story about the Emmy after party as well. That was was very interesting. So, uh, yeah, it's another great show next week. Uh, So please do tune in for that one. If you have enjoyed the podcast, uh, I would ask if you could take a couple of seconds just to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. 
as long as it's a high rating. And uh, <laughs> if you wanted to leave a little review as well, that would be great because that helps us climb up the charts and that helps us keep getting great guests on the podcast. But that's enough from us. We'll be, we'll be back next week. See you then. See you then.